0: This is the second episode in a two-part series. Please listen to Cynthia Priolo, Part 1, before beginning this episode. This is The Fall Line.
1: The driver of the car bumped or nudged the victim with his vehicle, and she stepped out of the way. And as she stepped out of the way, she took a mace can and fired some mace into the interior portion of the car, uh, apparently hitting the driver. Even if she did fire the mace gun into the car, striking the driver, stepped out of the way. The driver had an option to drive away, call the police, and then prosecute the victim, but he elected to do something on his own.
0: It was April 1st, 1991, and three friends, Damon Parker, Stephanie Buffington and Cynthia Priolo, were walking across North Avenue in Atlanta, Georgia, headed for a shopping center on Ponce de Leon Avenue. That center was anchored by a Kroger supermarket. They hadn't planned on going into the store itself. Its parking lot was just a convenient cut-through. But after that night, they all, most especially Cynthia, would be associated with it. Their shortcut meant that they walked with traffic streaming around them, cars heading toward or away from the store. Here, Damon and Stephanie, in separate interviews, described what happened as they crossed that lot.
2: We were coming from behind, which was North Avenue. We came through the back parking lot, and we were on our way to Ponce de Leon, coming from the back.
3: Were you in the back when you first encountered the car?
2: No, we were actually on the side. We had just come up to the front. Basically, there was a loading dock, and then there was a little uh, street that kind of come to the front of it. And we were right there uh, towards the front of it. We were still on the side.
3: When was the first time you realized somebody was coming up behind
2: you? Yes, yeah, so we didn't even hear him coming. Uh, we were actually, like, you know, walking. Uh, we weren't single file, but we were kind of close to the building. And he claimed, he came up behind us and he kind of claimed that uh, we were in his way. So Stephanie and I, we moved over to the side a little bit. It was kind of uncomfortable because we were almost to the point where we were squeezing up against the wall. He was coming so close. I had noticed that there was actually two lanes of cars that were going around us. So we weren't blocking two lanes of cars, but yet he thought we were in the way. And the way we were uh, forced to walk was kind of uh, inconvenient, intimidating. It seems like we were being maneuvered some kind of way. And I really wasn't comfortable with standing up for myself at that point, but Cynthia was, and she refused to move out of the way. She said, you can go around me. Every other car is, and that's when he hit her with the car. And the way the report, the news report comes off is, is that they try to insinuate that we knew each other or that it was a nudge with the car. It was not a nudge, it was a hit. Yeah, Very slow, but at the same time, yeah, nobody really wants to get hit with a car going at 10 miles an hour.
3: When did you realize that she had actually been hit by the car?
2: I saw the whole thing. I was paying attention to everything that was going on. So the moment it happened, I saw it.
3: Where on her body was she hit?
2: Uh, the back thighs. She, had, she was, had her back turned, and he hit her with, from the back.
3: Do you remember her falling onto the car or stumbling?
2: She stumbled a little bit, but she didn't fall.
4: It was three of us, myself, Cynthia, and my cousin Damon. And we were walking at like if anybody knows how big a parking lot is, we're walking kind of side by side. And his car is kind of going around us, like, oh, he can go around. He's like, beep, beep, beep. It's like, go around us. You know, we're being smart. Just go around us. So he slows down and says something. And they were getting in. I was like, Cynthia, let it go, let it go. He's like, and I didn't hear that part, but Damon and Cynthia said, hey, he said he was gonna hit us with the car. I was like, okay, he's just playing. And so he, as we're walking, he did kind of bump her with the car. So she says some more words. And then she's like, oh, I'm going to spray you with the mace. And she had mace. I think she did spray the mace in the car, but not really. She pulls it out. And so we walk away. I was like, come on. I grab her a power arm. I'm like, come on, let's go. And so we started walking again. Damon says, hey, he said he heard a mumble or something. It's like, Oh. And I do remember the guy after we kind of drive by, I should shoot you. I was like, oh, he's just joking. Go get around the building. He sat there for at least four or five minutes. He sat there in his car before he came around the corner and started shooting at us. So he had time to think about, I don't know if he was mad, he wanted to shoot somebody anyway, but he had time enough to say, hey, let me pull out my gun. Let me shoot somebody that day.
2: I saw the uh, anger in her face, and that was when, you know, you saw the Brooklyn part of her come out, and she went around to the side of the car. They got into an argument. He said, no, I don't remember every word that was said, but the general gist of it is, how dare you hit me? And he says a couple of bad words, and then that's when she pulled out the mace and sprayed it. And she actually didn't spray it on him. She sprayed it into the car. That's when I was like, eh, you kind of made a mistake there. You should have sprayed it in his face. And that's when I started fumble, saw him fumbling with the glove compartment, and it didn't really register to me what was going on. Um, I, as we turned the corner uh, to the front, we were at the front of Kroger, and at that point we was very much in the front on the what is that the the west side of it, and that's when he had he was he pulled in front of us. He had the gun, and I just he said I got something for you, bitch, and. And um, I just was frozen. I couldn't believe this had happened. It's like, if anything's going to happen, let it be something that we provoked, not this. And just out of nowhere, he started shooting. He, I remember it was about three shots. And I kind of looked at myself because I, I thought I was hit, but I wasn't. He fired all, all three times at her. And then he kind of just drove off as if he'd done it a million times before. He was not moving fast at all. I don't know why I didn't get the license plate number. Maybe it was fear, maybe I blocked it out, whatever. But I remember his face, I remember the car. I just don't remember the license plate.
3: When you realized that Cynthia had been hurt, can you describe that?
2: Um, at first um, I wasn't sure because she wasn't saying anything. Uh, My cousin had already hit the ground. I was just kind of like standing there kind of frozen, unfortunately and I looked for um, a response, and she hadn't said anything, and then finally she fell, and I saw the blood, and so I ran immediately to, to call 911.
4: It just seemed like time went so slow. Fast, because I saw her get shot, but it's just so slow the time the police got there. I was like, where are they at? I think I hear them. And it's weird, because the station they took to me, to was just around the corner.
3: Right around the corner from the um, Kroger?
4: Right around the corner from the Kroger.
3: But you said at the time you were thinking like, where are they, are they yeah.
4: coming? Yeah, cause after she got shot, I was like, is somebody shooting at us? Is that backfire? Cause I really didn't realize, you no, know, this guy was shooting at us. And I was like, okay. After I dawned on me, he's like, he's shooting at us. As soon as he stopped shooting, I'm gonna call the police. But no, I looked over and my friend just like, I've been shot. <laughs> that's the last words I remember. She's like, I was like, to be okay. And it was some off duty police officers going into the Kroger and they, they heard the shots too. And that's when I kinda ran in. I was like I didn't even know they were off duty cops. I was like, I need help. And one of the Kroger tenants was kinda really was like, Oh, somebody already called because you no know, sales phones really went down because I couldn't afford it in big blocky things. It's like somebody had called. I was like, just get off the phone and call the police. And I ran back outside, and that's when the police was telling me the off duty cops, like, just talk to your friend. She's going to be okay. But the cops did not come immediately. I think it took about 10 or 15 minutes. It was not immediately. I definitely remember that.
3: Do you know if the ambulance came before?
4: I think the ambulance beats the police. Uh, um, the the real officers, if I'm correct. I really do. I just remember when they were asking me a whole bunch of questions. I was like, I gotta get in an ambulance. I need to go with my friend. And they wouldn't let me go. The cops were like, no, we need to get your statement. And they were just asking me a whole bunch of cl- questions.
3: When the ambulance got there, the police got there shortly after mm-hmm. and they wouldn't let you go with her? Mm-mm.
4: And he just asked me, he's like, what did the car look like? What color was the car? What did the guy look like? And I was like, the guy looks like this. I'm not good with making models. The car was this way. And I do remember other people in the parking lot saw that car speed up. I was like, other people telling you, one guy, I'm hearing him say, the car was that color you said, it's this. But all they were focused on, what did the guy look like? What did he look like?
3: That was one of my big questions. You guys had been in the in the melee, but there were a lot of other people in the parking lot who may have seen far away, realized what happened. Did the police interview a lot of people?
4: I didn't see them interview anybody but myself and maybe ask Damon questions, but because I was in the front of Cynthia and Damon was kind of on the backside of Cynthia, I think they were most concentrated and asked me, where was I going, what was I doing, do I know? And I was like, no. And then I think they asked me, I remember maybe one number of tags, I'm dyslexic, so numbers are bad for me. And I, kept, I was like, I don't know, it was A, I think. I, even if I saw the numbers, I would have to look at them like, at least 20 times to get them right.
3: Did you get a clear view of the shooter?
4: I did, mid 40s, um, dark skinned, African American. He was not rough looking, he was clean looking. at the time, if you would ask me,
3: Maybe a month later, I probably could give you a better description. But it's been, you know, a couple of years. It also sounded like the way Damon described it. His car seemed to be like restored. Like maybe it was like shiny. Like
4: it wasn't older car. It was a mid you no know, older car, but not bad, not
3: beat up, not damaged. No, yeah. Yeah, like it was cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember? Were you? The one who sat down with a sketch artist I was. yeah what do you remember about that process
4: mm, he's asked me what shape i head, do i remember what the eyes look like i was like kind of but not really because you know i'm traumatized at that point i was like give me a second i need to it was so much going through my head i was like i gotta call her sister that's the first thing i gotta call her aunt who she lives with um how do i tell somebody her relatives well, just got shot. How do I call? I gotta call work because she was scheduled for work. So and I was like, I don't know. I remember his eyes. What did his eyes look like? That's when they came up saying I was like, oval. And were they angry? I don't know. I couldn't remember all that. It's like I just I can
0: have flashes of what the man looked like. The next few hours are hazy in Stephanie's memory. She can't remember the precise order of events, but Retired APD Lieutenant Danny Agan was able to walk us through how the scene would have been handled and the process for interviewing witnesses. In this case, that meant interviewing Stephanie and Damon.
1: Typical steps you take in a, a case like that is ask, did anybody see anything? And if anybody's foolish enough to step forward and say, yes, I saw it, then you're going to grab them and then you're going to really make their life miserable. And a lot of people for that reason will say, I didn't see anything. They don't want to get involved. And there's a reason they don't want to get involved because getting involved is going to disrupt their life then, and maybe even down the road. So, but you ask and every now and then somebody will say, yeah, they will do the right thing. And they'll come forward and say, yeah, I saw what happened. Uh, Then what you do sometimes is uh, when the crime scene photographer gets there, start taking pictures of the crowd. You're not just taking pictures of the body, but you take pictures of the crowd. Start getting pictures of cars that are in the parking lot, tag numbers. This is what you're looking for in case you need to go back and try to cultivate a bit um, a witness um, um, at some point later. Um, of course, if somebody says they didn't see anything, there's not a lot you can do about that. Um, There's not even really a a requirement that they would have to produce identification and tell you who they are. Um, So you're kind of stuck.
3: Yeah, would you, like, make an announcement in the Kroger? Like, if anybody saw what just happened, can you come to the front? Or, like, how would you just sort of see people walking by and be like, hey, did you see something?
1: Usually what you would rely on is the first officer that gets on the scene. That officer gets on the scene. And if the officer's doing what the officer's supposed to be doing, that would be securing the crime scene and trying to locate witnesses. That officer may have already put their hands on some witnesses. So uh, uh, then once you get there as a detective, you may go through the crowd, if there's a crowd there, and say, did you see what happened? Can you tell me anything? But that's about all you can do. I mean, you... Uh, so far as getting on the PA system inside the Kroger, I, I didn't even think about that. I guess that would be an option nowadays.
3: In this kind of scenario, like the suspect was there one minute and gone the next.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
3: other than what was with her at the time, what kind of evidence would be collected? I mean, this is such a hard crime to even think about solving.
1: Well, see, back in the day, it was even harder this Back in the day, you didn't have all of the helpful things that you now have. Cameras on every pole in the parking lot, cameras up and down the street, um, <clears throat> license plate readers and patrol cars that are randomly reading license plates in the area. Uh, back then, it was a lot tougher. So, what you're having to do is, is just work with what you have. So you talk to your witnesses, see if you can determine what a good lookout is, best description of the car, best description of the individual, and then get that broadcast and see if anything comes of it.
3: But in this case, I mean,
1: he was gone. He was gone. And you, this is, this is where your investigation starts. You arrive on the scene. Um, that's usually what the, report would reflect. I arrived on the scene, found the victim, 48, on scene. Medical examiner came to the scene. Investigation continues. And then that's that's what you roll into the investigation of trying to determine uh, all the facts and circumstances leading up to this, which will maybe enable you to solve the crime. The, the common knowledge is that the least reliable form of Evidence to present in court is going to be that of a witness account of the event. They will remember what they want to remember. And especially over time, things will get skewed. Um, That's why it was important back in the day. This is the way we did business back, back in homicide back then. We would round up witnesses. Did you see what happened? Yeah, I did. We would grab them, wouldn't let go and we carry them to the homicide office and set them down in front of a typist and then get a written statement with questions and answers. We had typists back then that could take statements better than most detectives. They, they knew what to type. They knew what needed to go in the statement. They knew what questions to ask. And when somebody starts talking, and they're talking 90 miles a minute, and we had typists that could type so fast that the... Uh, IBM's electric typewriter would be smoking literally and so they're typing 90 miles a minute and people are running off at the mouth and we'll stop now who did that and they would stop them and then make the statement make sense and then the detective would follow up with more questions maybe the detective was there maybe not but the detective would go over the questions and the the statement with with the witness uh before it was signed then then ask additional information but the the stenographers, the typists that we had back then, knew how to take a good statement. <clears throat> so we would capture all this information as quickly as we could before it had time to really get bent out of shape. And in my mind, uh, what we got on paper was about probably ninety-five percent on the money, uh, because we didn't we didn't fiddle around with. Or we'll contact you tomorrow. That shit didn't work. We didn't we didn't call people tomorrow and say we need you to come in. We would grab them right then. And then the worst case scenario is the typist is off. It's three o'clock in the morning and I'm having to type a statement myself and I can't type. Or or a call up radio. Do you have anybody up there that can type? Yeah. I need them to come in here and type a statement. Um, But we we would do it right then and there as quickly as possible before somebody had a chance to misremember what they saw or think of a better story to tell. And you catch people off guard when it's fresh in their mind before they've really had time to go home and let it marinate in their, their brain about, well, this is what I saw. What I saw might not sound good. Maybe I need to change it. If you catch people early on, you can usually get a pretty good statement. We knew this. So these witnesses would have been Uh, brought to the homicide office within an hour.
0: Stephanie remembers the suspect sketch, which you can view on our social media and website, as being completed very soon after the APD arrived on scene. It's a sure thing that the officer would have taken down descriptions, both of the car and the suspect. But a sit-down with a sketch artist, that could have taken longer to schedule. In 1991, at the Atlanta Police Department, that artist would have been Marla Lawson. You've heard her, and about her, on our show before. Before she was the first female forensic artist for the GBI, and long before she trained her daughter Kelly to take her place, she was working at APD. Retired Lieutenant Danny Agin, he remembers her well
1: marla is just amazing Uh, she
3: actually was hired on as a typist initially because she said she went in and tried to get a different position and they said we only have room for typists so she kind of went and typed for a while and she eventually said you know i can draw right i I think she sort of did a few off the side and they thought oh okay well i guess we'll give you a chance like
1: Marla's a legend. Mm-hmm. She was really good at what she did. And and I watched her do this a time or two. She would hand people a stack of uh, mug shots and say, okay, I know these people aren't going to look exactly like the guy, but find the one whose eyes look like the suspect. Find the one whose ears look like the guy. Find the one whose mouth. And, and she would do that. And then she would, in her mind, she was able to look at this combination of pictures and then draw one composite. And sometimes it was just scary how accurate she was.
0: Marla's sketch was distributed to all the local news outlets. Damon remembers the coverage even to this day. And for a short period of time, Cynthia Priolo remained a focus of local media. A murder in Atlanta in 1991 might have been relegated to a short article or a minor TV broadcast mention, but Cynthia's was different. People might victim blame, say she brought it on herself, but it would be difficult to avoid thinking about a stranger willing to shoot another stranger on a Monday evening in public with dozens of people in eye and earshot. If there was someone out there brazen enough to do that, then it could happen again. Our current culture in 2019 may feel like the most frightening time to be alive, with true crime at the forefront and daily alerts of missing persons cases. But it's not the reality. According to Disaster Center, 1991 was the most dangerous year in recent American history. That is, the time when violent crime rates were at the highest. In research into other cases, We found that Atlanta's numbers were a little different. We had a major spike in 1988 and an increase that did continue through the early 1990s, but 1991 wasn't our worst. That year, the AJC reported that homicides in the Atlanta Police Department zones had actually decreased by 11%. According to available news coverage, which ends in January of 1992, they declined to release the precise numbers. But based on 1990 statistics, which were released, it means that in 1991, there were approximately 205 murders. Now, that's in the city proper, a portion of Fulton County that doesn't include every high crime area in the metro. Cynthia Priolo's murder on April Fool's Day of 1991 was the 49th homicide APD investigated that year. The coding in the corner of her incident report confirms this. The Murder Accountability Project collects data on solved and unsolved homicides in every state and covers the years 1976 to 2017. Their records are based on the FBI's own cumulative reports. Currently, the project's filters are not perfectly precise, but by selecting a series of limiters, it's possible to view approximate data on those 200-odd Atlanta cases from 1991. We can't verify that the numbers are a precise match for APD's own records, but they're close enough to examine. So, according to Murder Accountability Project reports, 82 of the 1991 murders remain unsolved and 54 of those unsolved homicides were committed with a firearm. The vast majority of victims were Black men and mostly young adults. Two of the unsolved gun homicide cases were those of Black women. Though names are not included in the data, the date and victim age make it clear that one of these women was Cynthia Priolo. We've not been able to identify the second woman, but case notes tell us that she was murdered in what was likely an acquaintance crime, And her case is coded as drug-related. In 1992, four unsolved gun-related homicides of Black women, all marked as circumstances undetermined. In 1993, six Black women murdered with firearms, one a victim in a burglary, the rest, again, marked as undetermined. The purpose of this analysis is to find patterns, or clusters, which is what the Murder Accountability Project calls them, of killings if Cynthia's killer had a record, a pattern, if he was prone to random acts of stranger-on-stranger violence, we haven't been able to identify it. And in the years directly surrounding Cynthia's death, we haven't found news reports that mimic the basic pattern of the crime. Of course, there are dozens of variables here. Should we assume that he would have had a similar victim profile? Would he kill in the same way? could he have had cooling off periods that stretch beyond the narrow parameters we set in our research? Of course. The point is, though, that nothing swims to the surface as another possible piece of the pattern, a way to identify the killer. When we spoke to retired APD Lieutenant Danny Agan, we asked him what, if anything, we might learn about Cynthia's murder by studying the specifics of the crime.
3: So, what we thought was very interesting is that this guy had a little time potentially to think about should I really go around the corner and shoot this stranger
0: but him pulling off and then thinking it's over and then him coming back to shoot her we
2: found strange I don't you don't no
1: i don't I don't find him waiting a minute to shoot her strange at all in fact, it makes it even more plausible in my mind, and maybe this is why they say most good policemen are one step away from being crooks themselves. But I'm thinking the longer he has to stew about it, looking at them after she's done sprayed him in the face with mace, he's pissed off and he's like, I'm going to get her. He's sitting there stewing. His eyes are burning. He's pissed. She's done disrespected me. She was walking slow. She wouldn't get out of the way. I'm talking in his mindset. I'm not justifying anything that he did and he's mad, he's given it a minute to think about it, he's got a gun, he's like, all right, I'll do it, yeah. In fact, if she'd have went in the store, he probably wouldn't have waited on her. Then again, maybe he would have, I don't know, but she's still in the parking lot, and he sees her, and he's like, okay, it's catch-up time, I'm going to do it.
3: Do you think that type of person is someone who would have killed other people before or after that?
1: You know, that's, that's a broad question, and, it's, and it's, there's no hard and fast answer on that. I can see it both ways. But if I had to put a weight on one side of the scale or the other, I'd say he probably ain't never killed anybody. And I'm thinking he probably hadn't ever been in serious trouble with the police. He just got mad. And he flew off the handle and he did something that he couldn't take back. And then on top of that, he was able to keep his mouth shut. And the leads that came in didn't lead directly back to him so he could be fingered. And he got away with it. Got away. Keeping his mouth shut's the crucial part of this. A lot of people can't keep their mouth shut. It's like they'll have to go tell somebody. So
0: if Cynthia's killer did keep quiet, what then? How does a case like hers, one with little or no evidence, one committed by a stranger in a public place, how does it get solved? According to retired Lieutenant Agin, public tips are absolutely vital. Without the public seeing the sketch of the suspect or recognizing the description of the car, law enforcement is left with very little to go on. In 1991, in Atlanta, there would have been thousands of Oldsmobiles on the road and thousands of middle-aged men who fit the suspect description. Without a unique witness detail, a license plate, or a striking suspect feature, a case like Cynthia's will likely stagnate.
1: Once a case goes cold, unless something comes up that is going to reactivate the case, it's, it's inactive. It's dead. It ain't going nowhere unless, unless a lead presents itself to follow up on. And sometimes they do. Sometimes you get somebody that will call up and say, uh, I need to talk to a homicide detective. This has happened. And it's like, yeah, what do you need? I want to confess. Confess to what? To the murder I did 25 years ago. Um, In this case, it didn't happen, but you never know. The detective, I have found out, since y'all have contacted me, I've talked to someone at APD, and they've told me some of the steps that were taken. There were leads that came in on this case, but they came to no end. There was nothing developed that led to the the identity of a suspect. Um, And I say the identity of a suspect. Suspect identified but shown in a lineup, and the, the witnesses failed to pick that suspect out. Well, you can't drive a square peg in a round hole, so you need to move on to something else. But there were several of those. Uh, somebody's name. Somebody's dropped a dime. Here's the tag number. You find out who the car's registered to. Then you, you you develop a photograph, and you show a lineup to your witness, your best witness. And the witness is pretty good based on what I've I've been uh, reading on this, what's been refreshing my memory. The witness was very detailed in the description of the car and of the suspect that was behind the wheel. And the witness cannot identify the person that you've developed as a suspect. So that's a dead end. And you do that as many times as you need to. As many leads that come up, you work on developing the suspect, presenting the lineup, doing what you can to see if this guy is the one and then it comes to nothing, and then you move on to something else, or eventually you forget about it. You set it aside. The detective that handled this case is now dead. I mean, nobody at APD is sitting down looking at this as an active case any longer. And they won't be until something develops that will reopen the investigation or reinvigorate efforts to, to solve it, because there's nothing happening. And all cases don't get solved
3: is do you mind if i ask is that what happened in this case that there may have been a suspect but they were not able to be picked out of a lineup
1: there were names that were developed leading to the identity of a person It was followed up on lineups were shown to witnesses witnesses failed to identify that person as the shooter so <clears throat> that's the protocol of what you do, what you can do. Um, after that, there's not a lot not left, not a lot left to do. I mean, it's still in the file that this person was named. The file's still there with with these identified suspects or these names that came up in the investigation. I wouldn't even call them suspects. They were just names that developed in the investigation way back when that came to nothing.
3: Uh, there were they
1: were possibilities. They were leads, but, but they didn't pan out.
0: Every case calls out for resolution. And when there's a victim who has little or no family left, no place in the public consciousness, no updates that bring in dozens of tips, that conclusion is unlikely to arrive. Cynthia Priolo's death has its place in Atlanta legend, but she's been overshadowed by the place where she died. If her killer's face was as circulated as the faux logo of the murder Kroger is on Atlanta social media, well, maybe there would be a chance at justice. If you have information about Cynthia Priolo's killer or any other circumstances surrounding her death, call the APD's Major Crimes Unit at 404-546-7896. To submit anonymous tips, call 404-577-TIPS or email the anonymous information using the online forum at crimestoppersatlanta.org. You can find the full description of the suspect's car and a copy of his forensic sketch on our website and all of our social media accounts. We would like to thank all the listeners who have taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We absolutely could not do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove, and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Lexi Newhouse. Content advisors are Brandy C Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store. A portion of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Dope Project.